Please be seated. I do send you greetings from your sister church, Grace Reformed Presbyterian in Des Moines, Iowa. It's a real blessing to be with you here tonight. And my deep thanks to your pastor and to your elders for this opportunity to minister God's word to you. It's a pleasure. It's a privilege. And Stella and I have many good memories from our time here in 2008 and 2009. I was the pastoral intern here. I could say a lot more and reminisce more about that, but that's not why I'm up here. I'm called to preach God's word. So, brothers and sisters, if you would, please in your, turn in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And I'll be focusing tonight on verses 20 through 26, but since this is part of the high priestly prayer, a very profound prayer as we're going to see in the scriptures, I'm going to read all of it, starting in verse 1. There are many, of course, all scripture is God-breathed, we know that, but within that, there are peaks, and this is one of them. Let's read it together. John 17, beginning in verse 1. Let's give our careful attention to God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine is yours, and yours is mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have, ma- I have known, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That sends us reading from God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, brothers and sisters, what we just read is often co- is part of the upper room discourse. It's found in John chapters 13 through 17. This is the time, the very intimate time that Jesus spent with his disciples after he ended his public ministry. This is also a, a very critically important part of the New Testament. As Dr. Sinclair Ferguson puts it, he wrote a book, by the way, called Lessons from the Upper Room. It's all about these chapters. If you haven't gotten it, I encourage you to read that. He writes in that book that the upper room discourse, what it allows us to do is it allows us to eavesdrop on a very intimate conversation that Jesus had with those who were closest to him. And this section enables you to get to know your Savior a whole lot better and to see what was on his heart as he prepared to be crucified and leave his disciples behind. And bear in mind that Jesus spent some very precious time with these 11 men to prepare them for what was ahead as he called them to serve one another, and he did it, you recall, through the example of him washing the feet of his disciples. He then gave them a new commandment, to love one another. He said that he was going away to prepare a place for them in his father's house. He declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, the only source of salvation. He promised them the Holy Spirit by whom they would bear much fruit. And he warned them of the dangers they were going to face in a very hostile world. And then he promised that their sorrow would be turned to joy. And then here in John 17, Jesus concludes with a prayer, which when you take a step back and look at it, you realize this is amazing. Because we see here Jesus, the Son of God, praying to God the Father. Try to wrap your mind around that. And in verses 1 to 5, Jesus prayed for a return to the glory which he had with his Father from before the beginning of time. And then in verses 6 to 19, he prayed for his disciples, although there are many things there that he prayed for that would also apply to you and your fellow believers, since you are also disciples. But tonight we're going to focus on verses 20 to 26. And here what Jesus is doing is he is praying for all believers. As he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples who were with him that night, but also for those who will believe in me 
And then he prays three things for all Christians everywhere. First, he prays that believers would be united. He prays that believers would be united. Second, he prays that we would behold his glory. That we would behold his glory. And third, that we would know his name. So again, first that we would be united, that we would behold his glory, and that we would know his name. First, he prays that we would be united. Starting in verse 21, he prays that they may all be one. Then you look at verse 22, he prays that they may know that they may be one even as we are one. And then in verse 23, he prays that they may perfect, become perfectly one. And this means that he prays for our unity three times in just three verses. Now, unfortunately, there's been a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about this prayer request because it has been misrepresented in a number of different ways by groups that have made it, wanted to make it fit their agenda, especially in the last 500 years. For instance, Rome argues that they are the church that Jesus established in the New Testament and that we Protestants have severed ourselves off from them. And the only solution in their words, as they often put it, is for us to come home. Now to them, only when we Protestants recognize them as the one true church and join them, only then will Jesus' prayer for unity be answered. And sadly, there have been many wayward Protestants who have fallen for this argument. Now, this prayer has also wrongly been used by certain liberal churches. Now, in the Sunday school hour this morning, Elder Ben Stahl talked about this. Um, groups that say, have been saying for a long time, we love Jesus, we love the Bible, but... And then they hold to some form of uh, heterodoxy, not orthodoxy, not the truth. So whenever you hear that, we love Jesus, we love the Bible, but it was a warning to us, your antenna should be up. And to those who would say something like that, certainly pray for them, and then as graciously and winsomely, as humbly as the situation will allow, yet uncompromisingly, speak the truth and love to them. I only bring that up as a reminder, but also to say that we cannot have unity with them. And unity has also been redefined in the broader evangelical world to mean that, well, we shouldn't ever disagree on theology. That Jesus, well, he was about love, and really that's all we need to be. But here's the problem with that. If you want to truly understand the gospel and to learn what it means to glorify God in your life and to learn how to love others, this can only come about as you study your Bible and you learn its theology in these areas. Now, I could give you more examples of misunderstanding on this prayer for unity, but I think you get the point. Jesus' prayer for unity has been badly misunderstood. So we need to ask the question, need to answer it, what did Jesus have in mind when he prayed this prayer? Now, to understand this more clearly, let's examine what Jesus has already prayed in this chapter. In verse 6, he prayed for those who have kept your word. In verse 8, he prayed for those who received the word that his father gave him. In verse 14, he prayed for those who are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then in verse 17, he prayed that they would be sanctified by the truth. So it's understood that what Jesus is doing here, he's praying for the unity of Christians. 
for those whom he died for and who would one day embrace the gospel. Given that this is only for believers, what does he pray that their unity would look like? Well, take a look at verse 21 again, and notice what he prays, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. So what we see there is Jesus prays that the unity that you and I have as believers would resemble the unity that God the Father has with God the Son. Now, clearly, we can't be united to each other in the same exact sense that the Father and Son are united. Rather, this is speaking of the fact that we as believers are united together through Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans 6, 5, we are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And on that basis, we have unity with each other because of our unity with him. To put it another way, we're all here tonight, and we're not united just because we're all Reformed Christians who live in the United States, or because we're from OPC and other Sister Napark churches, as wonderful as those things are. Rather, the basis for the unity that we share is in Jesus Christ himself. And to see how this unity came about, I'd like to ask you to please turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And when you get there, we'll read verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, brothers and sisters, this passage is saying that all believers, regardless of their racial, ethnic, and social backgrounds, are a new race. Together, we are the Christian race. And this wasn't something that you accomplished. It, Jesus did it. And as a result of that, we are one race, and we are united together. And this unity deeply impacts the relationships that you as a church body have with each other. In fact, this unity will inevitably reveal itself in local churches just like this one. Like when different people have a need, others rush in to help. It's wonderful to see. And while you might think it's very practical, and it is very practical, it also points to a deeper theological truth. 
which is that from the beginning of time, Jesus alludes to this in this prayer, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had perfect love and perfect fellowship with himself. And this means that when you demonstrate that free and giving and selfless love with each other, you are showing the world a glimpse of the love between the three persons of the Godhead to the unbelievers all around you. And this type of self-giving, self-sacrificial love is rare because it comes from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dr. Skip Ryan, longtime PCA pastor, tells the story of his roommate in graduate school. His roommate was a man named Lem Tucker. Now, Lem was a big, strong man. He played quarterback at the University of William and Mary. And after they graduated, Lem became the president of a Christian organization in Jackson, Mississippi. And Skip Ryan was called to pastor a church in another state. I think it was Virginia. But they stayed in touch. A few years later, this was 1976, Skip Ryan flew down to Jackson to visit his friend Lem. And when they saw each other at the airport... They were very close. They immediately embraced. And Lem Tucker then said to him, Welcome to Jackson. You've just flown in to 1950. Now at first, Skip Ryan didn't understand. But then he looked around them, and he saw that people were staring at him and Lem Tucker. That's because Lem was black and Skip was white. And at that time, just like in 1950, a white man and a black man did not publicly embrace each other in Jackson, Mississippi. So when they greeted each other at the airport that day, they were met with lots of dropped jaws and angry stares. Now, sadly, shortly thereafter, Lem died from a rare illness. You know, he's a big, strong man, loved the Lord. He was only 30 years old. Hundreds of people came to his funeral. As it turned out, Roughly half of them were white, roughly half of them were black. And as Skip Ryan reflected on his relationship with Lem Tucker, he realized how much it taught him about the gospel and what the unity of the body of the Christ should look like. He said this, By being brothers in Christ, Lem and I were in our own small way shouting the truth that God the Father sent God the Son, because there really wasn't any other reason why Lem and I would be together, much less be brothers much less love each other. And brothers and sisters, that is a picture of the unity, the special unity that Christ is praying for in this passage. And next we'll see how this all comes about in Christ's second prayer request, which is that we would behold his glory. Jesus prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be in them with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And after this prayer concluded, Jesus and his disciples would leave the upper room, then they would arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane, and there Jesus was going to pray again. But this time, this time the prayer was going to be very different. He prayed this in Matthew 26, 39. He said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, referring to the cup of his Father's wrath that he was about to drink. But then he prays this, Nevertheless, not as I will. I'm going to stop there. 
Now, the Greek word there for I will, that's the same word for I desire that's in verse 24 of our text. And as Dr. Ferguson points out, even while these two prayers are, are so different, they're actually very connected to each other. How so? Well, knowing what he'll pray in the Garden of Gethsemane helps him to know how to pray first in the upper room. In other words, our Lord very willingly drank the cup of his Father's wrath while knowing and dreading what he was about to endure. But because Jesus willingly endured this torment, he was able to pray that when you die or when he comes again, whichever comes first, that you will see him in all of his glory. And you know what? Isn't this the heart's desire of every Christian? To see Jesus in all of his glory? That very first moment when you see him shining and radiant. Much like how Peter, James, and John saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. But even while he'll be perfect in his glory, do you ever think of what's going to go on in his mind when he sees you? He will see you as one whom the Father has given to him, as one whom the Father has given to him as a gift, and he is going to be so happy, so delighted, and so pleased that you are there with him. And that should make sense. After all, you are his bride, and he loves you deeply. Now, why am I bringing this up? It's because even as he was facing the greatest crisis of his life, something that he truly dreaded but he knew he had to do, he, Jesus, was thinking of you in this prayer. Jesus was praying that you would see him in all of his glory. As it says in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But why is it so important to Jesus that you would see him in his glory. Now to find out why, let's examine verse 25 again. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Now Jesus, what he's doing here is he's speaking of how the world had rejected his Father, and in just a few hours, the world was also going to reject him. And the disciples were about to witness this final rejection and that they too would also face this rejection after he ascended into heaven. And in his prayer in verse 25, Jesus wants every believer then and now until the end of time who has ever faced shame, who has ever faced rejection, who has ever faced persecution on account of Christ to be vindicated and to see him in his glory. Two years ago, something great happened in the city of Atlanta. It does happen. The Braves won the World Series. A lot of fans here, I'm sure. As you watch that final out, you watch them jumping up and down and celebrating. You were so overcome with emotion. You see the players overcome with emotion. They're pumping their fists in the air. Maybe one of them even broke down in tears. Did you ever wonder what was going on? Well, that was their moment of glory. 
as they looked out in the crowd searching for their loved ones and looking at all the fans who had supported them through thick and thin over another grueling season. You think about that, maybe you think about the Olympics. Understand this, here's why I bring it up. That is a very pale illustration of what Jesus is praying for in verse 24. That we would all share in His glory. Remember, His prayer for you is that one day you will see Him in all of His glory. And that's what He desires because He loves you. Which now takes us into Jesus' third and final prayer request, that we would know His name. He prays in verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I think we know that in the Bible, names are very significant. We know Adam means man in Hebrew. Joel or Joel means the Lord is God. Peter, the name that Simon was given to by Jesus, means rock. Jesus means Savior, and so forth. Now, even today, names can carry heavy significance. It's not uncommon for parents to name their children after a beloved family member, or a close friend, or figure in the Bible. Now, with that in mind, when you think about that, think about baptism. You know what baptism is? Baptism is a naming ceremony. Whenever a child or an adult gets baptized, the name of God is placed on them. So when I, up at the church that I pastor in Des Moines, or your pastor, Pastor Zaki, baptizes a person as ordained ministers, what we're doing is we're baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we are asking that the worth and the value and the truth about the triune God would be placed upon them so that they would know God as their Father, that they would know Jesus, God the Son, as their Lord and Savior, and they would know that God, the Holy Spirit, as their paraclete. That's the word Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14, which means helper or counselor. And keep in mind, that when a baby or even an adult gets baptized, it is done with the hope and the belief that they will live up to the three names given at their baptism and especially that they would live up to the name of Jesus Christ. It's also a common practice in many Reformed churches like ours to encourage those witnessing a baptism to take a moment to reflect upon your own baptism and to assist and pray for the parents as they rear their child in, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And then through time, when that child matures and comes to saving faith, he will publicly profess, or she will publicly profess their faith, take membership vows, and this will be his way of publicly declaring that he now takes the name of Jesus Christ upon himself and that he himself now bears the name of Christian. And you know, I, I was here many years ago, my wife and I were, and we've come back and we've seen many people who are little children, who've grown up, and they're part of the church. One is even serving as an officer. You know what that is? That is deeply rooted, biblical covenant, theologically being lived out before your eyes. And it's a blessing to see. And then, 
you, the members of this church, will be charged with assisting that young man or that young lady in their faith through your godly example and prayer and encouragement as they become part of this church family. And then together you will all bear the name of Jesus Christ as you make the name of God known to the world around you. And beloved, all of that is entailed in Jesus' prayer in verse 26 that we would know, that we would know the name of God as he, Christ, continues to make it known. And notice again why he prays it. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And as one who bears God's name, you are the recipient of his love. And that's what you experience in a church family right here at Redeemer OPC when you encourage each other in the faith and, and they're there for each other whenever it's needed the most. And it all starts with the love of God as it says in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. Now, having said that, it's true that in any family, there are going to be challenges. From time to time, there will be disagreements, misunderstandings, sometimes even hurt feelings. So these things can happen in the life of the church as well. But when that happens, beloved, remember who you are. And remember whose name you bear. You bear the name of Christian as one who belongs to Christ. And then remember why he was crucified and about the tremendous love that he and the Father have for you. And attached to that, understand God's love for you, it isn't just some sort of, you know, fluff, fluffy, feel-good, sappy sentimentalism that you find on Valentine's Day cards at Hallmark. No, this love from God the Father has real depth as I mentioned earlier, this love is at the core and at the heart and at the very essence of Christianity. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who had deep and perfect unity and love with each other from eternity past. So when God the Father decreed that God the Son would come and die for your sins, and God the Holy Spirit in time would bring you to saving faith, you also would partake in that love. And Christ's command to you, therefore, is to love one another just as he loved his disciples, which has been on full display throughout the upper room discourse. And I would encourage you, at some point in the near future, go back, read it again. Maybe even tonight, reread John chapters 13 to 17. Be blessed all over again as you read it. But according to Hebrews 7:25. We see that Jesus prays for us here according to Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus continues to intercede for you even now that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Just let that reality sink in, brothers and sisters. And as it sinks in, I'm here to tell you that something amazing is going to happen to you you are going to find it harder not to love those that Jesus loves too. So when you gather together for worship here again next Sunday, and even the next time you partake of the Lord's Supper, I really encourage you to think about all of this. It is here in the church. 
gathering together to worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ whom you love and Christ loves. It's here that you all can strengthen your unity, you can experience a taste of his glory, and you can know, bear, and proclaim his glorious name. Amen. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, how we thank you for this prayer. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired your servant John to write it so that it would be preserved forever, so that we could be blessed by it and that we could benefit from it. Lord, may what we have seen in your word, may it penetrate our hearts and may we think of it much. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of our, in your name, O Lord, O Lord Jesus, the name above all names and the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Amen.